Hey church, good morning. So good to be with you again. Welcome here to part two of Revival in the Reformation. What an incredible time to be alive and following Jesus on the earth. A time where God is doing a brand new thing, where he is reforming his church, where he is reviving his church. He is picking us up off the valley floor and setting us on our feet to make a difference for him in the world in which we live. Uh, I so enjoyed sharing my heart around that last week with you. And if you missed that, uh, I really encourage you to go back and watch the recording because this year at Rhythm City will only really make sense in light of what I shared last week. That heart for what God has put on the inside of me uh, for the word for the year, revival in the Reformation. Uh, is so important to all that we put our hand to and all that we try and accomplish for the Lord this year in our church across our locations. Uh, and so this week, I want to share part two. Last week was very conceptual. Uh, I laid a framework, a theological and philosophical framework for what I uh, thought uh, this all means, revival in the Reformation. Uh, but this week, I really want to focus on the revival part. And I want to talk about what a new revival looks like. Uh, and so to start here, before we even get into the seven characteristics of a new revival that I want to talk about today, uh, I want to just briefly unpack a little bit uh, about what I mean by a new revival. Uh, what, how does what I'm talking about for this year differ from what we may think about when we hear revival based on our previous experience. So if you are ready, uh, I hope you took some notes last week. Why don't you do the same today? Get your phone out again, uh, not for social media, but to take notes and to write down some things that God is going to speak to you about as we unpack this. And so let me just start by saying, although the revival that I believe God wants to bring to the church is different to what we have experienced previously, I want to also honor and just say that I am so grateful for every um, revival spirit that has been put on the inside of me over my years of being a follower of Jesus. Um, I'm grateful for all the revivalists and the revival preachers who have tried to ignite a flame in the church throughout different ages um, to see the church have the life of the spirit that God has called her to embody. Um, I've, I've, you know, for those of you who know some of my story, many of you may not. Uh, but when I was born again, I was born again into a church that was experiencing a revival or a move of the Holy Spirit. Uh, church went from 9.30 in the morning till around 1.30 in the afternoon. Uh, that's not necessarily a surprise uh, in Kenyan culture. Some churches may do that to this day. Um, but when, when this was happening, I came in on the tail end of the move of God and church used to go until 3 p.m. But I was coming in when it sort of wrapped up around 1.30. But I remember uh, the pastor saying, okay, well, we're going to have to wrap up our service. And I thought, no, can't we just sing a little bit longer? Uh, it wasn't just a, a um, you know, striving, um, pushing service, just waiting, you know, trying to conjure something up. No, God was moving. 
Um, I, I, I saw people uh, gain freedom and come to Christ. I was part of prayer meetings that weren't just nice, solemn, um, reflective sessions, but they were filled with fervor and power. Uh, there were hundreds of people praying before the service even started for an hour. Um, the midweek meetings involved prophetic acts like marching around the church auditorium seven times and then shouting for the walls to come down like Jericho. These were wild times and they were beautiful times. And so uh, the, 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 the thoughts that I want to share today do not, um, are not a criticism of what has been. Um, but they are more a putting my ear towards heaven for something that I believe is more sustainable in the life of every believer. And so if God wants to um, bring times again in the church where there is a, a heightened level of spiritual awareness and spiritual activity amongst God's people, and if he wants to renew any of the things that have been, I'm up for that. Um, but I have something within me that I feel like will sustain us over the long term. And that is a place that we don't need to come in and out of, uh, but is a place that we can live in. And so I want to share just briefly about a perpetual personal revival. Um, revivals on a corporate scale are great. The problem is uh, we're not in one right now. And so what do you do? when we aren't living in a place of heightened external activity. And the thing, I guess, that I'm a little bit weary of when it comes to pursuing a, a revival that is an external experience of God's power, something beyond us, something that comes from heaven and is beyond our control completely, uh, that's poured out, uh, is that that sense of revival can become a spiritual crutch for the people of God. And we've talked about these this concept of spiritual crutches over the last few years. Uh, we saw in the COVID period how our weekend services had become a crutch, a spiritual crutch for many people in the church. Uh, and when that spiritual crutch was taken away through lockdowns, Many people fell over in their faith because they didn't have that crutch holding them up. They didn't have the pastor's encouragement. They didn't have the worship leader's faith. They didn't have the, just the environment of the weekend service to uh, lean on and to support them. And so when it came down to being a Christian in lockdown on Monday morning, the crutch wasn't there and people fell over. And I've seen this with revival as well, I've, I've experienced times of heightened spiritual activity, what we might call revival. Um, and then I've also seen it subside. Uh, and, and, and the problem is when we get used to something external, when we get used to that heightened external experience, when it goes, uh, we can fall over as well. And we go, oh, now I've seen Christians come out of revival with uh, what a mentor once described uh, to me as a revival hangover. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to live the spirit-filled Christian life without something being poured out into them. And so uh, I want to talk to us and what I believe God has given us and what God is calling us to in this season is to utilize and to access and to step into 
everything that has already been given to us to live in a place of perpetual personal revival. And I believe that's possible. I'm, I, I say this not to, uh, not to sound boastful, but I believe that I've lived in a place of perpetual personal revival for my entire Christian life. Uh, at least from the, the first few years, after the first few years onwards. And I say that even though I've been through dark nights of the soul, even though I have spent some seasons um, so riddled with anxiety, it's been hard to get out of bed. Even in those moments, I would say I was living in revival. Why? Because God was first, because I was depending on him, because I was calling out to him. I was crying out to him. I was believing for him to move in my life, whether it be a mountaintop or a valley. And I believe revival is that very space where we can walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, have God first, despite what's going on in our lives. I believe that this kind of revival is a revival that happens in us and through us, not just on us or upon us. It's not something that we are waiting for or crying out for. It is something that we are stepping into and walking into. It's a movement. It's a move of people as much as it's a move of God. It is seeing the church move. It is seeing us move not just waiting for God to do all the hard work. And so how does this happen? How do we live in that kind of place where we live revived, where we're not waiting for revival, but we live in a place that we are revived and alive in God continually in our Christian walk? Well, I think the first thing to point out is that, um, is that more relies on us than we think it does. Now, don't get me wrong. Last week, I said that revival was a uh, people-initiated move of God. I'm not just talking about conjuring up some sort of energy. I'm not talking about hype. I'm not talking about screaming and shouting and trying to make it look like we're, we're living in revival when we're not. No, however, it is a work of God. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the energy of God in our lives. However, although it is not something we conjure up, this revival of God's spirit in our hearts is something that God has promised to give to us if we will initiate it, if we are hungry for it, if we thirst for God above anything else. Uh, God's promise is unfailing, but our posture is the thing that changes. And I believe God's promise for us to experience his life is there regardless of the external climate in the church as a whole. Every day of our lives as believers, we have the promises of God to access the riches of his glory, the power of his Holy Spirit, despite what we are facing in our lives. We have that every day. What changes is our posture towards receiving that and stepping into that. Let's consider a couple of scriptures. James 4, 7 to 8 uh, is a life scripture for me. It's a promise from God that I just know it is for me. And I know that if I do what it says, that the promise of God in it will be my portion. 
And it says this, So humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. That phrase, come close to God, and God will come close to you. That is a promise for us. But remember, it's us that comes close to God first, and then God draws near to us in return. Why? Because the Spirit of God has been poured out on all flesh, and the invitation has already been given by Him to draw near. But it's our posture and our position before Him that draws on that promise. Or what about Luke 11 verses 11 to 13? You fathers, if your children ask for a fish, do you give them a snake instead? Or if they ask for an egg, do you give them a scorpion? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Oh, what a beautiful promise. And so we have this incredible opportunity and promise from God that if we draw, if we ask, if we seek, if we knock, if we initiate, then he will reveal himself to us and he will fill us with power every single time. That is what we can walk on. And we don't need an external revival for that. What I'm talking about is probably more uh, less about what we think about typical revival. And it's more about living revived. It's about the spirit-filled life. So uh, again, before I move any further, just a couple more thoughts around this. There are two things that we need to overcome in the culture in which we live for us to, to continually be able to posture ourselves in a place of hunger and receiving before God. The first one is challenges and the second is comfort. Both of those things can be a hindrance to us uh, that stop us from being hungry for all that God has and can stop us from putting him first. Challenges are a big one. Challenges can push us towards God, um, but they can also take our faith, destroy our hope, reduce our love, and they can cause the fire on the inside of us to just go down, 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 down until it is all but quenched on the inside of us. And as people of God, we need to know and we need to learn how to overcome the challenges we face, how to seek God in the midst of them, how to rise up with courage and boldness in the face of the things that we walk through that are difficult, not let them take us out, but let them be a catalyst to live on fire for Jesus. But not only challenges, comforts can be an even greater disaster. Uh, Pastor Phil talks about crisis-centered Christians rather than uh, Christ-centered Christians. And he talks about this uh, up and down life that we live, that when things are good, we let our fervor drop. We let our pursuit of God drop. We go, you know what? Things are pretty good. Uh, life's pretty good. Work's good. It's pretty busy. Family's good. 
and, 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 and it's these comforts, these good things, these things that God has given us as a blessing uh, that actually become idols in our lives, taking the place of God as our place of first love and pursuit. And so we have to be able to rise above each of those things, the difficult things that come our way and the blessings that come our way. We need to rise up over those and find a place where God remains the ultimate desire of our heart, where his face becomes a greater pursuit for us than even his hand and the things that he does for us. And doing that requires us to regulate our emotions and to not deny our emotions because our emotions are a very important part of what it means to be human. Uh, We can validate our our emotions, but we can't let our emotions drive our life. Uh, I say it this way, we can't put our emotions in in the back of the car, we can't tuck them away in the trunk or the boot, but nor can they be in the driver's seat. Uh, We need Christ to be in the driver's seat. We need to learn how to say to our emotions, our discouragement, our depression, our sadness, our whatever it might be, our unbelief, our fears. We need to learn as people of God how to speak to those things and say, I recognize you, I validate you, but I don't give you permission to dictate how I live my life or how I worship my God. And we see a great example of that which I've preached on several times in the life of Rhythm City Nairobi is Psalm 57, where David said, David comes out of a, a time where he is downcast, he's discouraged. Uh, but then there's a little interlude and he comes back saying this, awake my soul, awake my lyre and harp. I will awake the dawn with my song. And so what he has done in that moment, he has recognized what he's feeling He's recognized some things that are keeping him bound and defeated and held back. But he's saying, soul, awake, rise up. What's awake? Revive. Basically, he's saying, soul, get in in line. I'm going to worship. You're going to worship. We're going to see God. We're going to wake up in the morning and we're going to sing to him. And so that's the spirit of revival that we need to carry. Not a spirit of revival that comes from a pastor not a spirit of revival that comes from some external place, but a spirit of revival that is on the inside of you that says, I will not be held back. I will worship God with all my heart, soul, and strength. And so I'm talking about here a revival that is available to every believer in every season. And then if every one of us were to live like this, how could the church be anything, experience anything other than revival. If every person is seeking God and is alive to him, we will together see him do mighty things when we gather together, when we pray together, and when we worship together. And so that's the the introduction about what I'm sort of talking about when I'm talking about revival. So let's uh, spend the rest of our time here today. I just want to talk about seven characteristics of the new revival. And the first one is this. It is a revival of passionate love. Matthew 22, verse 37 to 40. We read it last week. It says this, it's the great commandment known as the great commandment of Jesus. Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul 
and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Oh my goodness. I believe that if the church genuinely embodied this, if we did love the Lord our God first and, and, and as much as that, love one another, that is a picture of revival to me. I was uh, playing golf with a, a friend of mine the other day and he is uh, a, a wonderful believer. He's a great man of God, um, but has had some trouble really connecting to church. He's part of a church, but to really get traction in being there week after week and to uh, get involved and to really see the value of church, he's sort of had a difficult time in recent years. And we were talking about uh, each pastor in different regions around the world having different challenges. Uh, I was saying that the, the, the challenges of pastoring in Nairobi are different to the challenges of pastoring in Newcastle because they're completely different cultures with their unique uh, elements to that. And he said to me this, he said, I think my pastor's biggest issue is getting people like me to go to church, to turn up to church. And I thought about it for a moment and I said, I don't think that's your pastor's greatest issue. I said, your pastor's greatest issue is helping people like you fall in love with the church, to fall in love with God and to fall in love with what God is doing on the earth. It's not just that Christianity is not just a, a religion about doing things. It's not just a religion about ticking boxes. It is unique in world religions in that it is primarily about an intimate walk with a God of perfect love. Um, you'll see um, in Old Testament and New, that is the heartbeat. In Exodus 19 verse 4, it says, uh, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That's what God said to his people. He brought the people to himself. Well, hold on. Didn't God bring the people out of Egypt to um, Mount Sinai? Or didn't he bring them ultimately out to the promised land to give them heaps of good stuff, milk and honey and all these great things? No, 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 no. They are the overflow. The purpose, the primary pursuit of God is that he brings people to himself to experience perfect love. In the New Testament, it's the same. Galatians 1.6 says, uh, it's a bit of a rebuke to, to the Galatians. I'm shocked that you are turning away so soon from God who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. God's heart is not that we would tick his boxes. It's that we would know him. It's that we would know the love that he has for us. Um, Jesus in the great commandment tells what is required, that we would love God and that we would love people. Um, that was still uh, in an Old Testament context, although it was written, it's told in, the, in a story in the New Testament. The rest of the New Testament gives so much insight about how do we do that? How could we possibly love God with all our heart, 
all our soul and all our mind. Well, John, the apostle whom Jesus loved, he referred to himself as, he's known as the apostle of love. He says this, we love because he first loved us. Isn't that amazing? Paul had a similar insight and he was trying desperately to help the Ephesians know and experience the love of God. He says this in uh, Ephesians 3.19, May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. What a God we serve. Then you'll be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Life, revival. We have that as we understand the love of God. And isn't it just amazing how it, how they describe uh, the love of God that as something we will never fully understand? I remember when we had a few, uh, a season in when we were running a youth ministry, um, when we were having about 100 young people turning up to our church on a Friday night and God was moving powerfully. I remember this big 18-year-old uh, um, guy from a local public school. He was a football player. He was big. He was rough. He came along for the first time. He was just standing there. And then we opened it up to pray for people. And he was uh, kneeling down on the ground, weeping like a baby. Uh, and I thought, oh, I wonder what's going on here. So I went up and I said, hey, man, are you all right? And he said, all right, I'm so good. I've never felt this warmth. I don't know what's happening to me, but it's amazing. That's the love of God who can break down the hardest of hearts. And that is the love that God wants us to know. And it's a passion and, and the love that we have and know is passionate. I almost added another characteristic called a revival of passion, but I just thought, you know what? Uh, it's we don't have a passion problem. Now, don't get me wrong, passion is important. A revived person is a passionate person. But um, passion is not the root. Passion is not the problem. If we think we have a passion problem, but we don't. We have a love problem. You don't need to tell someone who is in love to be passionate to be passionate about the person that they love. We've done two weddings in our Newcastle location this year, and just seeing the eyes of the bride and the groom towards each other as she's walking down the aisle and he's standing there and they're crying. My gosh, the passion is there. You don't need to tell them to be passionate. I didn't, it wasn't in the pre-marriage counseling saying, come on, on your wedding day, you really have to be passionate about this. No, it's an overflow of the love that they have together. And so we need people, if we're gonna live revived, people need to catch the fullness of Christianity the fullness of God's love for them. As long as we limit Christianity to rule keeping and box ticking and regulation keeping, people are going to be inoculated. They'll get enough of Christianity to stop them from living on fire. But we need people not to be vaccinated against Christianity. We need people to catch the full version in Jesus' name. Okay, second, uh, there's seven. We're going to get faster and faster as we go through. We're going to see a revival of public faith. It is time to go public for Jesus, people. Uh, in Luke 8, it's the questions asked, who lights a lamp and then covers it? Man, you are called to be like John the Baptist, a bright and burning lamp. And that lamp should not be covered. And so I, I was thinking about this and 
uh, in light of what we're talking about last week of a our culture going from a Christian culture to post-Christian and in Australia, anti-Christian. Um, one of the things that has happened uh, in Australia, and I do think in Nairobi as well, is that the church has shrunk back from being a bold public faith and witness to the world in which they live. Um, many of you will know that when a human experiences danger, there are four different responses uh, designed in the human body to help deal with that danger. There's the fight response where uh, danger comes and there's a retaliation or a response. Uh, flight is another one where we run away from that danger. Uh, freeze is another one that you see in the animal kingdom a lot and in the human world as well where uh, people freeze and it's like they play dead and try not to be seen so that they don't get harmed. But there's another one that's not as well known, and it is this, fawn. And fawning, here's a definition, fawning is a trauma response where a person develops people-pleasing behaviors to avoid conflict and to establish a sense of safety. Oh my goodness, that has been the response of so many Christians to avoid the danger and conflict of persecution for standing for him. Rather than being, um, you know, uh, encountered by this uh, aggressive, ridiculing, criticizing uh, post-Christian culture, we've decided to be friends with the world. Oh no, we just need to be loving and kind and gracious and, and not start arguments and, and not, you know, rub people the wrong way. The problem is that persecution is a promised part of being a follower for Jesus. It's a promised part of being a follower of Jesus. And the more that a culture goes away from Christianity, the more that that is going to increase. And thank God that not often in our culture do we experience physical persecution. Uh, it's not common in our cultures. It's not an everyday occurrence where Christians are physically and violently persecuted for their faith. Thank you, Jesus. But it is becoming increasingly aggressive in a verbal way and in an emotional way. And it is big enough that we are going to require boldness and courage to stand firm for Jesus in this time. But it's a tough balance to find because on the one hand, we will not be loved or accepted by the world if we stand for Jesus. If the world loves every part of your life, and accepts every part of you, then that would be a dangerous place to be as a Christian. Uh, will, will we sacrifice our popularity to follow Jesus? Will you sacrifice your followers to use your social media to sell stories of the goodness of God? John 15, 18 to 20 says this, If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is no greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. Amazing. And so we're going to have to be ready to pay the price to live a public faith. But on the flip side, how we stand for Jesus 
has to be modeled in the love we just spoke about and the grace and the mercy that God has called us with. Uh, 1 Peter 4 verses 14 to 16 says this, and it's a fascinating one. If you are insulted because you bear the name of Christ, you'll be blessed. For the glorious spirit of God rests upon you. If you suffer, however, it must not be for murder, stealing, making trouble, or prying into other people's affairs. But it is no shame to suffer for being a Christian. Praise God for the privilege of being called by his name. What a beautiful passage. Do you want to hear Garth's paraphrase of that scripture? It's great to be persecuted for being a Christian, but don't be persecuted for being a jerk. Don't be arrogant and critical and judgmental and then have people push back on that and say, well, that's persecution. No, we looked uh, last year in Newcastle at this thought that we are called to share the gospel with grace, seasoned with salt, it, it, it says. And so how what we stand for, the truth, has to be non-negotiable. But how we do that in love has to be done with such wisdom. And we need to explore that this year about how we do that. I don't have much time to explore further on that now. We'll touch that later on in the year. Okay, three, a revival of extravagant worship. I'm talking about our music and our singing. Yes, Romans 12 says that our whole life is worship, but there's something about the church singing before the Lord, worshiping him in his presence, in the secret place in your bedroom, There's something about a believer and a church worshipping that is the result of revival and a revived life. So much can be said, but here's the point. The heart that is full of the Spirit, the heart that knows the awesome love of God, the heart that is revived and has been made alive again and being brought out of darkness and into light, it will inevitably overflow through through a mouth in praise to God. Luke 6.45 says, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Oh my goodness, isn't that phenomenal? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A Christian that is a valley of dry bones on the inside whose spiritual life has been dulled and dimmed cannot speak out praises to God, cannot pray, cannot witness. Uh, We are contained. But a, a, a heart that has been set ablaze for God will speak and declare his praises. Now, there is a time for all types of worship and prayer. There's times of reflection There's times of solitude, silence, quietness, meditation. Those are beautiful times. But there is a time where we need to move beyond introversion and containment and into a place of extravagant pouring forth of praise before our God. I'm not talking about hype as I have uh, disclaimed a lot in this series so far. I'm talking about a genuine overflowing of praise in our hearts to God. And in this response, our mouth, our voice is key. Uh, In a Babylonian culture, the number one thing that the king will try and shut down is the voice. 
uh, the voice of Christians. Daniel was told, you can do anything, but if you pray to your God, you'll be thrown in the lion's den. And Daniel said, you know what? My voice will not be silenced. And we need to get to a conviction as a church in that time that our voice will not be silenced. Our witness will not be silenced. Our prayer will not be silenced. Our worship will not be silenced. We must get our voice back. But not just our voice. Biblical worship in song is a whole body experience. Yes, our brain is a great tool to use. Um, We get in trouble if we think worship is not intellectual. It is. We use our brain. Uh, There are things we know about God that we worship Him for. There is an ability to think about God. There's an ability to, um, to, to know scriptures and to intellectually worship Him. But worship is not only intellectual. We are beings that are not just intellectual, but we are emotional. We are physical. There, is a, there are multi-facets to our existence and our worship has to involve all of them. There is no formula, but here is my key point about this. Worship on a Sunday morning where we have our hands in our pockets, our eyes open, our shoulders slumped, watching with our mouths closed week after week is not what I see in scripture as a worthy and adequate offering of praise to our God. That might sound harsh. What makes me say that? Well, we could read scriptures all day long. There are a plethora of them. Let's just read a few Psalms for our purposes here today. Psalm 71 verse 23. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praise to you. I whom you have delivered. Oh, we could comment on each of these. I don't have time. Psalm 66 verse 17. I cried out to him and with my mouth. His praise was on my tongue, crying out. What a sign of desperation and hunger. Psalm 95 verse 1 to 6. What a powerful passage. Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. God is bringing joy to the church this year. Let us come with him to him with thanksgiving. Let us sing psalms of praise to him. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. He holds his hands, he holds in his hands the depths of the earth and the mightiest mountains. The sea belongs to him for he made it. His hands form the dry land too. Uh, come, let us worship and bow down. Here we are. Now we're bowing down. We've got our whole body. We're not just shouting, scream, uh, you know, lifting our voices joyfully to the Lord, but we're bowing down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. We're kneeling now. My goodness, the whole body is well and truly there. The other scriptures I was going to mention, let me script, uh, just fast forward to save time. I'll sing aloud, one verse says. Uh, I'll play skillfully with loud shouts, another one says. It says in Psalm 149 verse 3, let them praise his name with dancing. Come on, people. If there's anything I see in Africa that is in the very heart of uh, this place, this continent, region, our country, Kenya, um, 
My goodness, dance is there. And you don't mind not have to break out like you would at a wedding every time, but something that moves your body. Something about body language. When our body moves and our voice lifts and our hands are raised, there is something that it does on the inside of us that brings life. And that is a worship that we have to engage in. We might not feel like it when we first walk into church. We might not feel like it when we wake up on Monday morning. But that's where the intellect and the decision comes in. We say, soul, I will worship God. And before too long, our perspective changes, our countenance changes, and we are filled with life and power from the Holy Spirit. I got to get moving here. We are running short on time. Four, a revival of holy freedom. Uh, We have been freed from two things in the Christian life. The first thing we have been freed from is sin. And what I might do to save time is I'll stop reading these scriptures out in full. You can read them in your own time. But Romans 6, verse 20 to 23 says uh, that we were slave to sins, but now we are free from the power of sin. We are called to live holy lives. The things we used to do in the dark, we can't bring into the light. Uh, There is an expectation that even when we... We have this habitual sin in our life, this thing that we just can't seem to shift. In time, it will shift. Uh, In time, we will see breakthrough. Uh, We are called to be in the world, but not of it. We are called to live differently. But in saying that, uh, we are also free from human rules. Uh, Colossians 2, 20 to 23 says this. Uh, It says that we have been freed from the spiritual powers of this world Um, and, and these rules of don't handle, don't taste, don't touch are mere human teachings. And it says about these rules that they may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial and severe bodily discipline, but they provide, provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. And so what we see in revival times, it can be a little bit, um, ultra holy. It can call us to. Um, say no to things that God has actually not caused us to say no to. And you'll find in scripture that God's primary commands are about right use, not um, and, 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 and to avoid abuse, to use things well, not abuse them. It's not often to not use them at all. Uh, when you think about sex, God says, use it within the parameters of, of marriage. And in marriage, it is a gift. It is a gift from God for marriage. When you use it in marriage, it's good. When you use it outside of marriage, it's destructive. Um, what about money? Money is a, it makes the world go around. It's a tool that God has given us to be a blessing, to build his kingdom. When we use it for greed and for self only, it destroys us. Uh, alcohol. Uh, the Bible talks about uh, not being drunk. Uh, it talks about wise use. Uh, it doesn't say you can't. Uh, have any, it says, don't get drunk, Uh, know your limitations. Um, The tongue, our tongues are a gift from God, right? To bless, to communicate, to proclaim. Uh, They're a gift, but they can also be used for criticism, gossip, slander. God doesn't say, uh, don't speak if you can't do it. He says, use it well, use it in the boundaries I've given. And so God is calling his church to holiness, We are called to be a different people, but he's also called us to freedom. Finding that balance is important that we don't go 
the other way and become legalistic, all about rules and regulations. But we are free. We enjoy what God's given us, but we use it in holy ways. Five, a revival of holistic healing. I'll just comment on this briefly. Physical healing. I want to see people healed. I want to see the gifts of the spirit moving, miracles, healing. I want to see people's re- people restored, bodies restored. Uh, I want to see people healed spiritually. I want to see the demo- demonic powers breaking off people's lives. I want to see people filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. But I also believe that what God wants to do is bring emotional healing. Often we have neglected that in revival times and we've made it all about the spiritual stuff. But where God is and what something God is breathing on in this time is making us whole, healed versions of ourselves. That includes childhood trauma. It includes inferiorities, ways that we see ourselves and that we see the world. Without that, without being able to love ourselves and become more whole versions of ourselves, it's very hard to love God. It's even harder to love people. God wants to transform you. God wants to take away everything that you've experienced that brings you shame, guilt, pain, trauma, and he wants to bring you into uh, a place of healing. Six, uh, a revival of radical reconciliation. Oh my goodness, there's so much to talk about with this, and we'll talk about it throughout the year. I was going to say radical unity, because unity is so, so important. Disunity in the church will kill revival. It is not possible for the blessing of God and the smile of God to be on a divided church. And I'm so grateful that in Newcastle and in Nairobi, we have people who have walked through difficulties. We have had people who have the chance to walk from a relationship, but have walked together, resolved issues, and built kindred connections and friendships on the inside as we go about kingdom work. And the sense of blessing on our churches right now, I believe is a direct result of that. And we need to contend for it. We need to fight for it. But not only do we uh, need to just see unity, reconciliation, I think, speaks to the multitude of um, healing and, and rightness that we see coming into relationships throughout our church. It speaks of our ministry of reconciliation to see people who are far from God introduced to God and his church. It talks about um, the global family we're building, uh, that we're building one church in three different parts of the world. It's, that's that's going to take reconciliation. It's speaking to the reconciliation and healing we're bringing to the relationships in our own cultures. And so the picture of Acts 2 is just beautiful in regard to this. It is a picture of people from all parts of the world coming together with one voice, people being added to their number daily. Uh, the Azusa Street Revival was a or was one of radical racial conciliation in a time of racial division in that society in Los Angeles. And we saw they saw black people and white people all worshiping together. They were criticized for it, but God poured out his spirit And it was one of the major contributions to the start of Pentecostalism in America. And so this is a really important aspect. Guys, God wants us to be together. He wants us to be united. He wants us to be one despite differences, despite our our differences of, of thought and our differences of opinions and the ways that we see things. Diversity is beautiful. Unity in diversity. 
I'm not talking about uniformity, not just talking about uh, losing your identity. I'm talking about keeping all the beautiful things that you are and you represent and bringing them together in harmony with one another in the church. And lastly, a revival of sacrificial contribution. Um, Many churches pre-COVID really followed the Pareto principle, this 80-20. 20% of people were doing 80% of the stuff in church life. Uh, Most of the ministry was done by a few church leaders. Most of the giving was done by a few key members. One of the, most of the serving was carried on the weight of a few pillars in the house of God. Most of the missional living and the reaching out to the community was done by a few extroverts. But this is an all-in revival. This is for every generation. This is for every part of the family. The priesthood of some believers, no, sorry, the priesthood of all believers. Guys, it's time to be activated. 80% of the church should be activated at any given time. Uh, Some hurting people might require healing. Some uh, newborn Christians might require some nurturing. And that's okay for people like that to sit back and to do what God needs them to do. And we should carry those sort of people. But for the majority of people, it is time to get moving. It's time to rise up in our generosity, in our mission, in our kindness, in our witness, in our prayer, in our serving. There is so much that God is calling his church to, to be engaged in, in the call of God on their life in this season. It's time for sacrificial contribution and activation. And so church, there you have it. I'm going to ask one of the team to come and uh, lead you in a responsive prayer today. But I hope that gives you a very um, big picture snapshot about what I'm talking about, about a revived person. Uh, Yes, God, come, have your way. Manifest yourself to us in your church. But more than that, I'm praying that we will see a generation of people who will overcome challenges, rise above comforts, step into all that God has for them to pursue Him, to love Him first, and people like we love ourselves. And as we do that, and as we love God with all our heart, we will see the Spirit of God breathe life onto us. We'll see all those things activated in our lives, and we will indeed reach Babylon for Jesus. God bless you. Can't wait to see you soon.